in Mark chapter 9. It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, real quick, it, it feels like we've been in Mark chapter 9 for a long time. I don't know if you know this, but we started it last year. Um, so Mark chapter 9 was last fall, and now we're at this fall, and we're in Mark chapter 9. So good news, next week, Mark chapter 10. It's going to be epic because we're moving on from chapter 9. All right, so um, we have, as we move through Mark this uh, semester, this quarter, I guess we've got, uh, we've got our memory verse, and that's going to come from Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Y'all can read it. You can say along with me. If you, if you think you got it, close your eyes and say it. Let's go. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to goodness. I didn't see anybody looking at the screens, and so I might not have been looking the right. That was really good. This is early, right, Brian? We've got a long way to go. That was great. Um, Okay, so uh, we we are going to jump right in, Um, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Netflix has a relatively new series out, uh, and I love it. It's called um, Cobra Kai. Yeah, anybody seen it yet? Cobra Kai is sweet. It is um, it is 80s rich material. So if you want something nostalgic uh, and you're from the 80s, watch, uh, watch Cobra Kai. And, um, and it's, it's based on, it's a story based on the Karate Kid. So in the, in the Karate Kid, uh, Danny LaRusso fights Johnny Lawrence in this epic battle. It's when he does the kick and all that stuff. And, and Johnny Lawrence, um, we don't really know what happens to him, but this kind of follows his life around a little bit. And he ends up running into uh, Daniel San again, and, he, um, and, and things kind of start to spin out of control between these two. And, and, and Daniel LaRusso, he's got this awesome life. You find out he's been doing really well for himself. He's got a car dealership. Uh, and, and he's got a great family, he's got a great house, and he's going to start a, a dojo. And what happens is, when he runs into Johnny Lawrence, he kind of loses sight of all that. And, and he becomes more concerned with taking down Johnny Lawrence. That becomes a really big issue for him, the fact that this guy's still around, and he starts up Cobra Kai again. They were supposed to be done. And, and so the more Danny LaRusso starts to focus on these guys, the more and more his life falls apart. He starts actually probably leading his family in some sinful ways. He, he, um, he, he stops showing up to work. So the more he focuses on, on taking down somebody else, the less his causes build up. The less what he's trying, uh, what he's trying to accomplish um, begins to, to fail. And we're going to see a little bit today. Jesus gives a warning to the disciples that if they do that, um, they, they could have some serious issues. Um, the disciples need to be careful where and how they're leading people. Um, so our outline for today's passage, we're going to see uh, Jesus rebuke the Apostle John, kind of give a warning to all the disciples about the dangers of leading other people into sin. And so here's where we're headed um, in Mark 9, starting at verse 38. So 38 and 41, we're going to see how humility is the key to building God's kingdom. And this is a carryover a little bit from last, from last week. It's, it's the same conversation that's happening in the scripture. And so next, we're going to look at verses 42 through 48, a little bigger chunk. We're going to see how discipleship is essential in battling sin. Um, And battling sin is how the world is actually going to know that we are different from them. And then 49 through 50, Jesus is going to charge us to be salty 
and to create unity. And so our big idea today is that humility is a disciple's first tool in battling uh, sin and unifying God's kingdom. Humility is a disciple's first tool in battling sin and unifying God's kingdom. So I'm going to pray for us as we dive into the word, and then we are gonna, uh, we're going to read the scripture, and then we're going to chew on it together. So let me pray. Father God, thank you for each person here. It is a blessing to be with them. Uh, Lord, we are excited to read your word. I'm going to ask, Lord, that you would just transform and change our hearts, that by your word we would be softened. And Lord, because of that, we would love you more, and we would actually desire to serve other people more. Lord, I, I pray what Brian prayed, that, that what we pick up from your word today doesn't stay here. The Lord doesn't stop at the door, but you use each person here to take your word and its effects into the world so you would be glorified. God, get your glory today and in the days to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read this passage together. I'll read it for us. We don't have to read it together, but follow along with me because it's really good to know that I'm not making anything up. Okay, uh, chapter 9, verse 38 through, verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, uh, before going right into each verse, let me back up a little bit because this whole thing, we're jumping in in the middle of a conversation that was actually started last week um, in, in last week's message. Jesus, though, um, th there's been some major things happen in chapter 9. Um, Jesus has established his godness, his divinity in the transfiguration. That was a huge moment. And then Jesus continued to show his authority over death and demons, and then he's told them of his death and resurrection, that he's the Messiah, he's going to come. And basically, Jesus, what he's done up to this point in the scripture is he has established that he's worth listening to. That he's, he carries some weight behind what he says because he's shown us who he is. And so now Jesus, what he's going to begin to do in this next section of Mark that we work through is Jesus is shifting his focus just a bit. He's shifting kind of from awesome miracle mode to awesome teaching mode. And his first lesson is going to be teaching them how to be disciples, which in turn is going to have an implication of how to make disciples. Um, 
And so last week, we saw them learn a great deal about humility and about being servants. So then I, I find it really interesting that what we're about to read from John, um, he's going to have his crack at impressing Jesus. Um, you know, everybody's kind of taken uh, their shot here, the, the disciples, and, and now we're going to see John do it. And, and what we're going to see, it's kind of like um, uh, my daughter Piper, um, she'll, I'll show her something one time, like even if it's taken off like a bottle cap, and then like minutes later, she's like, Dad, Dad, I'm going to teach you. Dad, I'm going to teach you. And it's like, no, you're not, you're two. Um, you're not going to teach me anything. Um, and actually, sometimes she does, to, to be honest. But um, she, she wants to jump in there and then impress us with what it is she learned, with what it is she knows. In 38, John comes up and he's kind of doing the same thing. Look at what he does. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And so Jesus literally just finished saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives not me, but him who sent me. And so, so John's response to this is kind of, it's kind of mind-boggling that, that he would even say this, because he's kind of like, so Jesus, um, you know, there was this guy doing some serious work in your name, and you might be pleased to know we rejected him. And, and John's like, because he's still pleading his case for who's going to be the greatest. I mean, how, how, how pompous is he in this? And, but John's whole, whole reasoning here is flawed. Um, he even says, well, look, look at what he says. Look at, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John's saying he wasn't following us. Well, here's the thing. John's reason for rebuking anybody should not have anything to do with himself, but rather should have everything to do with Jesus. We ought to think about that before we rebuke another believer for not doing things the way that we do them. Or before we come down on another ministry, inside our church or outside of our church, for not doing things the, the way we might want them done. See, we are not, at this location, we are not an exclusive club to Jesus. We don't have the rights on God. You know that, right? And so... The application here is when we encounter somebody doing evangelical work, we must consider most importantly a few things. Is the fruit, are they producing fruit? Is the fruit that this person is producing in the name of Jesus Christ? Are they glorifying Jesus? What are they saying about who Jesus actually is? Is their platform for evangelism? Is it based on Jesus being the Savior? Um, later on, we're going to actually see that John learns this. He actually learns it in life, and he writes about it. And so look, let's look at, at two ways we can support this application. First is John in his first letter, 1 John. Um, by this, he writes this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 12.3 concerning spiritual gifts, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. So, when examining another ministry or a person, consider first, who do they say that Jesus is? Secondly, we look at the fruit that they're producing. 
we get this from Jesus himself. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says in regards to false prophets, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So this means that mighty works of God don't come from non-believers. Verse 39, and it's going to support this. This is where Jesus, in the same passage, is giving weight to all those things we just laid out. Jesus says in 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Again, if the fruit of his life, this guy, this person in here, if the fruit of his life reveals good works for the Lord, we know that he's not going to be against the Lord. In time, we're going to see um, the fruit of this man's life and that he won't say bad things about Christ. Just like us, his life will reveal that this is all about Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves, does our life, does our fruit reveal, does the fruit of the ministry we're looking at reveal that it's all about Jesus? So let me give you an example. For one day, if, if someday I go off the deep end and, and I start... What was the example you saw? A drug cartel. Like I start smuggling drugs, okay? Or, or exotic animals. Um, we would find out pretty quick that my primary concern was not for Jesus, it was for me. This, this would mean that, that I should, that I, I didn't love Jesus above whatever it was I was chasing in, in that crooked vocation. So here's an example how a concern for my own status could actually be damaging to others when we're more concerned about ourselves than our cause, than Christ. So I, here's another example. So I go to, I go to a coffee shop uh, quite a bit around town, a little place called Chapman's. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen me in there. And, and I'm in there, and we talk coffee a lot. We talk about coffee. And there are different kinds of uh, roasts. We talk about when they're good, all that stuff. And I've, I've learned a lot about coffee. But then I started to like look at myself and like what's, what's kind of unfolded. And we've got like this coffee tribe we've, we've created. And I realized that based on, on how I kind of talk about people who want to talk about other coffee. So one of the issues is um, like my, my knowledge of coffee and, and my desire um, uh, to impress people has kind of turned me into this sort of coffee snob. That's not a, that's not a great thing. Um, like somebody will come up to me and be like, uh, have, you, have you heard about like, what, what Spar- Starbucks is doing now? And I'm just like, Starbucks? Get out of here with that. Like I drink Chapman's, the good stuff. Um, you think Starbucks is good? Let me tell you. Um, and, and so like that's not even what Garrett Chapman wants. Like the dude's just out here trying to sell a good cup of joe and, and I'm over here creating a, a, a merry band of coffee snobs. Like that's not what he's... And so, but seriously, don't put cream in your Peru or your Highlander grog. Come on, get real. You're missing out. Um, In the same way, Jesus is saying to to disciples, he's saying, look, this whole thing that we're doing isn't about just you guys. It's about my kingdom. And and so... um, it's, it's not getting people to recognize, John, that you're in some exclusive club over here. It's getting people to recognize that I'm here and we're establishing my kingdom. So here's the question then. When we come to church, we got to really think about this. Um, what are you here for? 
Like, like why are you in church right now? Why, why do you do good works? Is it so everyone knows that you're a good person? Is it so, um, is, it, is it maybe because you're here because you grew up going to church? Do we sometimes treat our church body, our involvement, our being here, do we sometimes treat Christianity in our church like it's a country club? Look, being a Christian, it does put you in kind of a separate category than the rest of the world, but it puts you in a category that calls you to the service of other people. Christianity is not a country club where you come and partake of an elite Sunday brunch. And so you better not treat your faith that way. And your, your status as a moral do-gooder better not be wrapped up in how close you sit to the pulpit or how tight you are with church leadership or what position you even hold within the church. We ought to be part of the body because, because we believe with every bit of our soul that Christ came in the flesh and he bore our shame and sin and he rose again, ruling powerfully over his kingdom. We ought to be part of the body because we want to partner with others in gospel work, making the name of Jesus higher than any other name. I mean, really, that's what, that's what gospel partnership here at Friendship, that's what we mean by that. It's an act of saying the greatest thing in all the world is Jesus Christ, and I want to partner with others so they don't forget that. And those who don't believe will soon believe. And so that's what we're talking about when we're here. In these passages out of Mark 9, we can't overlook Jesus' blatant call to partner and serve our fellow believers. I mean, especially, look, we see it right here in 41. Look at, look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means, he will by no means lose his reward. This echoes his call earlier to be a servant. This is basic discipleship and the primary step to becoming a disciple maker. You have to be willing to show others, in particular, other believers, namely the ones who aren't against us, as it says here. We've got to be willing to show them what it looks like to do work in Christ's name. And again, that's what gospel partnership is all about. It's primarily about an allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is saying that when we serve other Christians, we are showing our commitment to him. And so I can't sit here and read this passage and claim that, that uh, being with Jesus is all about my status. No, it's all about Jesus' status and serving other believers because they have the same need for Christ that my corrupt soul has too. It's about serving others because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. See, Jesus is concerned with building up believers to grow his kingdom. So that moves us right into 42 through 48. Let me read this for you. This is the rough part. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So um, in light of what Christ has done for me, what must I do for others? Well, this radical work that Christ has done actually has called me to the work of radical discipleship. And so we have quite a bit of hard work to do with this passage. Okay, it's difficult because it deals with two things we really don't like to talk about, sin and its consequences and hell. Okay, and so real quick, before we even do that, I want to say something. If you look there, you might not find some translations have it, some don't. I'll explain why. You, you might be missing verses 44 and 46, especially if you use the ESV. I just know that one for sure. Here's why. Nothing tricky, nothing crazy. We're being transparent. Earliest manuscripts just don't have those two verses in there. The earliest manuscripts don't have them in there. Um, and if you want to know what they are, they're identical to 48. Verse 48, it says this, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Nothing's, nothing's being taken out of there. So um, that's what it is. We just want to mention it because it's there and our, we want to be completely transparent with the scriptures. Anyhow, as I said, this has a great deal. This passage has a great deal. We don't see it up front, but it's got a great deal to do with discipleship. And remember, because discipleship is what Jesus has now shifted to teaching on. This is where he's at. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has shown them his divine nature, and so now they got to do something with that. So Jesus is training them up. It's like when we become a Christian, we begin to get discipled. These guys have confessed Jesus is Christ. They're being trained. And so Jesus, being their Lord, his requirement is to serve. His requirement is to serve. And so this passage tells us that we must be careful for how we receive the lowly. Remember the child that Jesus mentioned? This first verse, 42, it, it tells us that we must be careful how we receive the lowly. We are not to lead them into sin. If we do lead them into sin, the warning here is extremely stark. So this is why we must treat the very idea of discipleship so importantly. Because we are responsible for how we lead other believers. See, Jesus means believers by the phrase little ones. So if you look in there, he says little ones. It goes back up to 36 and 37. According to these passages, there are at least two things that we must do to avoid leading others into sin. So we don't want to lead people into sin. Here's what we can do to avoid that. And I'm basing it on this passage, on these, these, these 20 verses that we've been going through. Okay? First of all, we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. That's the lesson that Jesus is teaching in all of this. Humility allows us to keep our pride in check. See, pride leads to a multitude of sins. There are many sins that pride leads to. First of all, pride destroys unity. Pride destroys unity. And pride creates sinful exclusivity. Pride creates sinful exclusivity. See, and here's, here's why like, pride is such a tricky thing. I mean, we can actually trace pride this is why it's so prevalent, excuse me. We can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Um, see, Eve saw in the garden this fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat, right? She saw that it was good to make her wise, is what it says. The serpent told her, he says, you will be like God. 
And in that exchange between the woman and the serpent, all of a sudden, this level of discontent uh, was, was raised, was given to her. All of a sudden, Eve feels like God should be giving her more than what he's given her. Like she's deserved something. Like God was holding out on her. And so this was her pride taking over, which eventually led to her husband falling to the same sin. Her pride drugged somebody else in with it. And the same thing happened to Satan. He says, I will be, I will be like the Most High. He's cast out. See, we must, what we must do then is we must examine ourselves to see where we can grow in humility. When we look out for others, when we look out for others before ourselves, when we're willing to put other people before us, we'll be more willing then to point them away from sin rather than drag them into ours. What I mean is if we're so selfish and focused, even if we are pulling somebody along with us, chances are we're going to pull them into something that's not good for them. We have to keep our pride in check. The second thing that this passage calls for is it calls for radical love. And so loving someone means that you're willing to sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. Look, if we love the Lord, then we're going to obey his commands and pattern our lives after scripture. So likewise, if we love someone, we're going to teach them to obey the Lord's commands and to pattern their life after scripture. Showing a young believer how to do life under the kingship of Jesus is the ultimate service to a believer. Showing a young believer how to do life under the kingship of Jesus is the ultimate service to that believer. This is that cup. Look, remember he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The cup that we can give is to serve them, is to show them how to live for Christ. Okay, so disciplers also, um, as, as disciples, excuse me, as disciples and disciples, if we are to love God, and check this out, that means that we need to love the things that he loves and we need to hate the things that he hates. As disciples and disciples, if we're going to love God, we love the things he loves and we hate the things he hates. That's why Jesus early on, and we look, if you want to look quick reference, go to, the, go to the Sermon on the Mount. That's why Jesus talks about sin being a heart issue. Jesus, is, in, Jesus is, is actually saying this. He's not telling you to cut off your hands and feet. It's hyperbole. What he's already said is sin is a heart issue, um, but this is how serious it is. You might as well cut your hands, your feet off, and pluck your eyes out. And here's why Jesus gives us that warning. Because God intensely hates sin. Please know this. That God intensely hates sin. And he intensely hates sin because he intensely loves us. And so that's why for so many people, passages like this, where we talk about hell, can kind of raise this dilemma. Well, if God loves me, why is there such a hell? But actually what this does is this puts on, this, this displays the magnitude of God's beauty and, and holiness. God rightly punishes sin, but he provides mercy and forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So now we have to realize from this passage, we've got to realize that hell is real. There's no such thing as, I'm sorry, there's not. There's not annihilationism. It's this thing where once you die, you cease to exist. 
That's not in here. See, Jesus is telling us that hell is a place where the fire isn't quenched and a worm doesn't die. If, if hell is that place and a worm doesn't die, then that punishment is eternal. And I think a lot of people struggle with hell being too extreme. But let me, let me walk you through an example here. And maybe you've heard this before, okay? Um, hell just seems way too extreme for, I, for the white lie I told last week, okay? All right, well, if I get home from work and Piper is, is wondering where I've been and, and I've been working too late, but I don't want to disappoint her. And I say, Piper, I, I just... I was out getting something for you. Okay, I lied. Um, and, and then uh, it turns out that I tell, she's, nothing's going to happen. She's going to say, okay, Dad. And then I, I tell that same lie to Hannah. Okay, um, I'm probably going to be in the doghouse if she finds out I lied, right? Okay, well, if I tell that lie to a police officer who's trying to solve a crime and I lie to him and he finds out, well, then I get in trouble for obstructing justice. If I tell that lie then to the judge who I'm going to see after I got arrested, and he finds out I'm lying to him, that's called perjury, and it's a felony, and I'm in jail even longer. You see, the example is that when, when the authority that I sin against increases, the level of punishment also increases. And so what, when it comes to sinning against a holy, perfect God who is eternal, then our punishment must be eternal. And that eternal punishment isn't just a time out. Here it states that it's an unquenchable fire. And so you hear a lot of people say stuff like this too, that, that um, hell is being separated from God. And actually I want to push back and say that's not correct. Uh, you could hope hell would be separation from God. If God is truly present, if God is truly everywhere, then hell is actually a place where you're separated from God's blessing and his goodness. This doesn't mean that God stops being good. It means that you're receiving God's wrath. See, actually the fact that sin and sinful people are going to receive God's wrath because of it makes God good because he doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. See, um, hell is receiving the wrath of the God of the universe for eternity. And so how gracious is God, though? He warns us of hell. That's a gift right there. He warns us. And so we can't ignore the warning that he gives us in scripture. And it's funny because as I've like become a father, I've noticed that like my warnings don't mean a whole lot to Piper. It's kind of funny how it works out. Like they're just spankings, but she's figured that out that they're just spankings. And so, sorry, I, she's bad. She gets popped on the booty. Um, but here's the thing, like, I get, I get frustrated about that. And I was, I was praying the other day with Brian and this thought popped into my head, why do we get so frustrated when our warnings get ignored as people, yet we play a game with the eternal warnings of God and when it comes to our sin? It's almost like his warnings are somehow less serious than ours. The bottom line in all of this is, is Jesus is saying, flee from sin. God is like, I'm warning you, flee from sin. But how do we do that? How do we? Sin is sneaky. Sin is crafty. And if we're honest, sin feels good. And, and so in order to, to flee sin, in order to flee sin, we have to understand that um, God has been merciful to us. Jesus gives us a warning here, um, but he also gives us the way to combat sin. Simply put, he says that we're to cut sin out. 
okay? But in these verses where Jesus is telling us to cut sin out, um, um, we already have discussed a little bit, we've teased it out, where sin comes from. It comes from the desires of our hearts. So check this out. He's saying that in, in this, if, if, if Jesus says in a Sermon on the Mount that, that it's our heart that is the issue, and Jesus is here telling us to, to, to cut our, our hands, pull our eyes out, our heart gives us the desire to sin, but our eyes are going to teach us how to sin. Our hands are going to execute our sin, and our feet are going to carry us further towards sin. And so this means that what we need to do is we need to partake in some tangible, real ways that will help us reorient our hearts towards God and away from sin. So how do we change this? We need to, again, move our hearts. Once our hearts moves, our eyes won't desire to learn sin. Our hands will keep us from sinning. Our feet will flee from sin. Again, how do we move our hearts? Well, we do that by doing things that stir our affections for the Lord. What is that? What stirs your... I've been studying the Puritans lately. Here's the interesting thing about those guys. I used to think they were just stuffy men who wanted to make a bunch of rules. The Puritans weren't as concerned with keeping bad things out as they were with getting as much good in every day as possible. That's what the Puritans wanted to do. So consider this. Um, what drives you to love God? Let me, uh, let me throw some things I do. It's hard these days, but I love to get up early and, and read the Bible. Like nobody else is up, just read the Bible for pleasure. I want to read the not necessarily to study something. I've got some studies. I'm not studying something. All I'm doing in that time is I am enjoying God's word because that's what my creator wants me to know. Those are huge moments for me. I also now like, I like music. One of the things, I love hymns. It's weird. I didn't grow up with hymns. I used to hate hymns. They were boring and put me to sleep. But now there's something about the truths that you can get in hymns that I love, that stir my affections for God, that draw me to love him more. Another thing, I've got this friend named Ron Miller. Um, I like to go to Ron's house because here's what we do. We don't plan it. We're not like, oh, let's just sit around for hours and talk about God. It just kind of happens. And we talk only about the goodness of God. We don't parse out theology and all that stuff. We just talk about his grandeur. And, and I love going over there because I love to see how this man has discipled his daughters, how he's grown his family. This guy has centered his whole family around God and their life and the way it flows. And when you go into his house, you are just unexplicably filled with joy because he centered their home around God. Um, and so what I, I just love to be with him because of that. Being with other people is one way. So we can get that through one-on-one discipleship. Or we can go to people's houses for life groups. I mean, those are real ways we can do that. Um, lastly, and, and this is objective, so some of those were kind of subjective. Those are things that I like to do, ways that I like to engage with the Lord. But check this one out. This is the one that everybody should do. This is the one that disciples of Christ should love. Every one of us believers should love to do this. We should love to hear it every day, the gospel. Every day. If we want to push back against sin in our life, we should desire to hear the gospel every day. It should be the most beautiful thing we hear. If you want to continue removing sin from your life and grow in sanctification, here's what you have to do. Remind yourself that you aren't defined by your sin. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Like That's what this warning is about, condemnation. But if you're in Christ, that's not for you. Um, 
Sin earns hell. But if you're a believer, Jesus does more than get you out of hell. He actually takes you to God. We do. We deserve the punishment for our sin. But the beautiful thing about God is that, that he, he upholds this righteousness on one side with his wrath by punishing sin. But on the other side, he's also merciful. He's simultaneously being merciful and punishing sin. And I'm telling you right now, check it out. The wrath, the hell that is described in this passage, it is for believers. But it's been mercifully poured out on Jesus Christ so we don't have to experience it. Yet, here's why your sin doesn't define you. And this is big. Yes, Jesus took the penalty of your sin. But your sin doesn't define you because when he did that on the cross, he also gave you his righteousness. His righteousness was put on you. That means that God sees you as righteous and holy. If you're a believer, you have then been set apart not for some exclusive club, but for the glory of God to build his kingdom, to bear his righteousness, and to disciple his people. If you believe that Jesus Christ, that when you stand before God, all you can do is claim Jesus Christ as your righteousness, then you're gonna be with God. If you believe that, then you're in a great place. But it also means then that you've been called to the work of Christ because you're seen as righteous because of Christ. Um, undoubtedly, the one thing that we should preach to ourselves every day to fight off sin is the gospel, that we have been made righteous by Jesus Christ and we live and serve because he rules and reigns today. Um, Remember, we have a God who intensely hates sin because he intensely loves you and he proved it with his son. So lastly, when we remember the gospel, we cast off sin. We humble ourselves. That's what happens as we think about the gospel. So let's think about, let's think about this part where it says that everyone is going to be salted with fire. So see, um, that's verses 49 through 50 say this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, um, everyone will be salted with fire. I tell people this all the time. Life became more complicated when I became a Christian. See, because look, the things that I used to not think twice about doing, I think twice about now. See, a movie, for example, just used to be a movie, but now it's something that's either going to rob my affections for Christ or it's going to increase my affections for the Lord. A person is no longer just a body that I pass by. But it, it, it's a soul who either knows Jesus as their Savior or doesn't. Here's the other thing. People at church aren't just church people anymore. But they're the body that I'm called to serve out of love and allegiance for Jesus Christ. See, this salted with fire means that things are going to become more difficult for the believer. It says everyone. So some people are going to be salted with fire in hell. But for the believer, you're going to be salted with fire in suffering. Like there's going to be difficulty because you're a Christian. Things aren't the same, but our old habits and our old ways of, of life, um, they will eventually begin to, to pass by. 
But as we're drawn into those things and as our faith makes it through, when our faith makes it through that suffering and that trial and that difficulty, that's when we're salted. Salt was a preservative, right? That's what it was. And so our faith is preserved by trial. Faith and trials, our faith through trials is how we get salted. So Jesus is charged here then at the end of this. He says, have salt in yourself. You are to have salt in yourself. And then he says this, though, be at peace with one another. What he's done is Jesus has now put a bow on this whole thing. This whole thing that Scott started preaching about last week, Jesus just brought it all the way back around by putting a bow on it. This thing that we just saw in verse uh, 40, 41, 40 and 41. He's putting a bow. Be at peace with one another. If somebody is doing work in the name of the Lord, be at peace with them. You've got to recognize these things, that you're not the greatest and that you are to serve your fellow believers. And so when the world looks at the humility of a people who are characterized not by their own status, but by their humility and their desire to serve others, that's when we'll see revival and change. The world should not, seriously, the world should not be looking to CrossFit gyms and political parties and universities as the salt of the world. They should be looking to the church. The world should be looking at those who have received mercy from their God and how they live and how they want to serve one another. And we want them to say, wow, I want that for my life. So here's the deal. Fight sin every day, remembering the gospel. You've been declared righteous by God. Fight sin through that. Remember how he's, God has redeemed you for his purposes. Remember how God has redeemed other believers for his purposes. Then, out of humility, let's put down our pride and go serve others. And let's love them. And let's help others flee sin out of our love and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And let's build God's kingdom together. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, um, we love you. We are grateful for your word and how it can shape us. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the warnings that you give us. But Lord, that you, they're warnings, Lord, because you've delivered us. You've made a way for us to be delivered from those things. They're warnings, Lord, for the believer because they're not the way things are. Lord, you've given us a different faith. Lord, help us live in that. Help us serve others because of that. Lord, may your kingdom explode because we are a people who desires to serve you and love you above anything else. God, I ask that you'll get your glory through this body in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and sing, it is well with my soul. It says this, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's Day. It's great to see you all.